Welcome to the Believers Building Bridges podcast, where believers of all persuasions, Catholics, Protestants, Pentecostals, Latter-day Saints, all are made to feel at home. We welcome you. Yes, we believe if Jesus is the Lord of your heart and life, and He's the Lord of my heart and life, we're family. You're my brother, my sister, and I welcome you. Hi, my name is Lynn Reidenauer, founder of the Believers Building Bridges podcast. As I've said in previous podcasts, we'll be discussing a wide range of topics as we spend our time together. Topics such as, what is the church? Who is a Christian? Does God still speak today? Does the Bible teach conformity of doctrine or unity of the Spirit? Our subject for today's discussion is Answering the Antis, How I Handle My Anti-Mormon Baptist Friends. As a Southern Baptist minister who befriends Latter-day Saints, I get lots of hate mail from my buddies, especially my fellow Baptist ministers. They believe I've deserted them, jumped ship, apostatized, that I betrayed the faith. So, I thought I'd share with you, these next few weeks, some of our correspondences and my responses to those correspondences. Of course, I have changed the names for privacy purposes. Let's get right to it. Here's a letter I received on January the 4th, 2016, titled, What Are You Doing? I quote a fellow conservative evangelical. Yes, he says, there are truths found in the Book of Mormon, but there are numerous and major contradictions with Scripture. There are truths also found in the Koran, but it is not an inspired work of God either. According to the biblical text for a true prophet, says the inquirer, if it is found to be an error, the entire work should be rejected. Why does Moroni instruct us to pray to God to see if his words are inspired by God when the true test of a prophet is whether or not they accurately predict the future correctly? God never changes nor makes mistakes. Therefore, he would never reveal something different than what he has said in the past. In fact, a prayer test which gives us an internal feeling or experience could be subjective and even dangerously deceitful. It could be a deceiving spirit, which is why we are to test the spirits. And the inquirer goes on. I continue quoting. Why does the Book of Mormon teach that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do? Second Nephi 25:23. When the Bible clearly teaches that we are saved by faith apart from good works, why does Moroni say that infants are innocent when the Bible says they are born in sin? Why does the Book of Mormon state that Jesus was born at Jerusalem when the Bible clearly states he was born in Bethlehem? Why are the Jaredites promised by God to be the greatest nation on earth and that there would be no greater nation when this was promised to Abraham? Why does Moroni instruct us to pray to God to see if his words are inspired by God when the test of a true prophet is whether or not they accurately predict the future correctly 
and never contradicts what God has already revealed as truth. Here is my response. Brother, let's call him Bill. Brother Bill, thank you for your email, your inquiry. You commented, yes, there are truths found in the Book of Mormon, but there are numerous and major contradictions with Scripture. Brother Bill, your concerns seem to be primarily apologetic. And rather than frame my response in answering your numerous questions regarding scriptural accuracy or the lack of it, I want to address a larger issue, the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I love apologetics, am a student apologetics, and have a few favorite apologists. Norm Geisler, Ravi Zacharias, Francis Schaeffer. I was personally mentored by Dr. Schaeffer. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorites. Clark Pennig, Josh McDowell, to name a few. McDowell's classic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, is one of my favorites. You do bring up a valid point. The issue of contradictions within Scripture. The issue of discrepancies, however, does have its limitations. I want to say a brief word about apparent contradictions and discrepancies in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon, and then move on to what I really want to say. Josh McDowell, evangelical apologist, makes a few excellent observations in his book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. For instance, I quote, The unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable. Number two, fallible interpretations do not mean fallible revelation. Number three, just because a report is incomplete does not mean it is false. Number four, an error in a copy does not equate to an error in the original. Number five, General statements don't necessarily mean universal promises. And number six, later revelation supersedes previous revelation. I'm quoting from page 47. But, Brother Bill, in responding, I do not want to take an apologetic approach. I want to take Apostle Paul's approach when he was brought before King Agrippa. When Paul's life was on the line, when it really mattered, he did not take such an approach. He did not quote Scripture. And Paul was a Hebrew scholar, having studied under the best, Gamaliel. His defense was, and you'll find it in Acts 26, verse 13 through 16, his defense was his testimony. In other words, what he knew firsthand. My point is, Brother Bill, for a Christian, ultimate truth is found in a person, not in doctrine, not in theology, not even in Scripture. And I say that as a conservative evangelical believer, one who believes strongly in, one who loves Scripture, one who believes in biblical inerrancy. But as said, I am making a larger point. Jesus is ultimate truth. Scripture is the truth about the truth, Brother Bill. Jesus has well said that in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the truth, he said. Put simply, God is the truth. The Bible is the truth about the truth. And your theology, your doctrinal apologetics, Brother Bill, is the truth about the truth about the truth, capital T. Two biblical chapters emphasize my point. I believe Matthew chapter 2 
and John chapter 5 are perhaps two of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible. In John chapter 5, Jesus gives one of the harshest rebukes ever to a group of Pharisees. I quote our master, You, meaning the Pharisees, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. In other words, but you don't. And these, that is the scriptures, these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Verses 39 through 40. In other words, Brother Bill, the Pharisees were not wrong in doctrine. They were wrong in assumption. They assumed if they knew the word of God, Scripture, they knew God. But Jesus just told them, You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In other words, our Lord was saying, You don't get life out of the Scriptures. You get light. Psalm 119, verse 105. Life comes from Christ and Him alone, not the dead letter of the Scriptures. But Brother Bill, what good is a light when it's shined on a dead man? A dead man needs a resurrection, not a flashlight shined in his face. And in Matthew chapter 2, we have another sad situation. Here is a group of Bible scholars having a Bible study. Why? In order to find out where God is so they can go kill him. Herod had called his scribes together to search the scriptures to find out where Christ was to be born so he could go kill the Christ child. That's sad. Studying the Word of God to go kill God? A brother once told me, if studying the Word of God does not launch you into an encounter with the living God, it only makes you more religious and gives you that much more ammunition to beat up your fellow believers. I believe that, Brother Bill. My larger point is C.S. Lewis's point. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, Lewis said an interesting thing, and I quote, It's not that we Christians disagree, says Lewis. It's that we disagree on the importance of our disagreements. I'm quoting the introduction to his book. That is a very wise statement indeed. In other words, what's important to you, Brother Bill, may not be to me, and what's important to me may not be to you. For example, the Mass ceremony is very important to a Catholic, not to me, and I don't mean to sound cavalier. Likewise, the doctrines of the rapture and closed canon are extremely important to a Baptist, not to an LDS, a Mormon. Temple ceilings, sacred ordinances are enormously important to a Latter-day Saint, not to a Methodist. What's going on? I'm making the point C.S. Lewis made. It's not that we're disagreeing. It's that we're disagreeing on the importance of our disagreements. And that's the point of my response to your inquiry, Brother Bill. It's not that you and I are disagreeing. It's that we are disagreeing about the importance of our disagreements. For instance, I would say scriptural accuracy, the discipline of apologetics, is very important to you. I could be wrong. I don't think so. Such issues 
as how we as Christians handle apparent scriptural contradictions and doctrinal incongruities is a big deal to you. That's my feeling anyway. But again, that begs a larger question. What are the essentials of the gospel and how important are they? And what are the gospel non-essentials and how important are they? What is the difference between essentials and non-essentials? Which brings us, as far as I'm concerned, to the crux of the matter. Paul, I believe, enumerates the essentials of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I quote, Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, by which also you are saved. For I delivered to you, says Apostle Paul, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Verses 1 through 3. Paul states that the essentials of the gospel are Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. I submit, Brother Bill, all who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and that he rose again, I believe those are my brothers and sisters in the faith. To say it another way, I believe all who embrace him as their Lord and Savior are my brothers and sisters. To say it even another way, fellowship, I believe, in the gospel is determined by his lordship, not by creedal agreement. If Jesus is the Lord of your heart and life, and he's the Lord of my heart and life, we're family, Brother Bill. You're my brother. For unity is based upon his lordship, whereas conformity of doctrine is based upon creedal agreement. The Bible and the Book of Mormon teaches unity of the Spirit, not conformity of doctrine. Ephesians 4, verse 3, 4th Nephi, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Differences, in other words, is not necessarily division. On the other hand, neither is conformity unity. Oh, no. I have sat through too many Baptist church splits to know that. Our congregation was indeed in doctrinal community, but definitely not in the unity of the Spirit. While I was growing up, I went through three Baptist splits. Which brings us back full circle to Lewis's point. It's not that we Christians disagree, it's that we disagree on the importance of our disagreements. I like to say it this way, in the essentials of the gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection, there must be agreement. In non-essentials of the gospel, there need not be agreement. For instance, you and I, Brother Bill, may differ in our approach to the following. Just how important are the doctrinal issues you raise, such as the irrefutability of God? Are there different tests in the Old Testament and the New Testament regarding what constitutes a true prophet? And I think there are. Is there a correlation or connection between subjectivity, that is, prayer and inward spiritual experiences, and the objective Word of God? I think there are. To say it even another way, 
As a Christian, Brother Bill, do we possess a plumb line for determining truth certitude outside of our subjective experiences? If so, from what fountainhead does theology get her information to espouse her doctrine, to test her hypothesis? especially if we are not allowed to include the subjective as our definitive plumb line, as you suggest. Ah, oh, I see a dilemma. It's the old ontological argument that you're raising, my brother. The argument of is truth relative and subjective or is truth absolute and historical? Is truth both? And if both, which flows from which? If we cannot, Brother Bill, as you suggest, totally trust our subjective experiences, then is there a correlation between the existential Christ within and the historical Jesus hanging on Calvary? If not, then the gospel consists primarily and perhaps only of historical facts. But then, if so, are we to say that the inward born-again experience we evangelical Christians so embrace, by definition, experiential and subjective? Therefore, are we suggesting it is not to be trusted or cannot be completely validated because we lack a totally objective plumb line? See what I mean? The epistemological cat is chasing her tail. That cat just jumped off the bridge. I'm asking epistemological theological questions. I'm not merely playing semantics or playing with words, oh no, or trying to be cantankerous. No, not at all. So, Brother Bill, you and I may differ on the importance of some of these issues, perhaps most of them, but that is not to say our differences is criteria enough to invalidate whether or not we are Christians, or whether or not we are to disfellowship as brothers in the faith. That's my point. As important as these issues are to some of us, they are nevertheless, according to the Apostle Paul, considered to be non-essentials of the gospel. In other words, a person can be saved and not embrace some of these issues. Here are still additional issues you and I may disagree upon regarding relevance and importance. And still, I submit, remain brothers in Christ, fellowshipping arm to arm, heart to heart. Here are some issues that we probably disagree on. Is there a place for anthropomorphism within the Christian Godhead. Did the Jews in the Old Testament believe in such a doctrine? What about original sin? What about church apostasy of the second, third, and fourth centuries? What about the Hellenization of our early church fathers? Was Constantine born again when he saw the cross in the sky? What about the Nicene Creed? How trustworthy were our church fathers of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries? It seems to me our church fathers were attempting to paganize Christianity and or Christianize paganism. And it seemed to me they failed miserably at both. Just a few examples. After the decease of the 12 apostles, church fathers began to surface. 
began to take prominence within the Christian community. The majority of these men came from philosophy backgrounds, and these men, our church fathers, essentially wanted it both ways. They wanted to be philosophers and prophets. But Brother Bill, oil and water don't mix, never has, never will, and neither will philosophers and prophets. I'm talking about men such as Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Arrhenius, Ignatius, Augustine, Justin Moiter, Tertullian, Arius, Aquinas, and Athenius. I'm talking about our church fathers. It's been my experience, Brother Bill. Most Protestant lay people, even we ministers who went through Bible colleges and seminaries, were largely ignorant of what transpired in those critical first three centuries of the church age. For instance, according to Origen, cultivated Christians really think just like cultivated heathens, so that anyone would think either that present-day Christians are philosophers or that philosophers of yore were Christians. So said Origen. The story of Moses seeing God is for Origen simply one of those old wives' tales. And I quote again Origen. And if you take it seriously, he says, you run into the absurdity of saying that God is corporal, a thing which any pagan philosopher could tell you is just too silly for words. I'm quoting our church fathers. Augustine tells how, in his youth, after reading Cicero, he would laugh at the prophets, and how from the very first the pagan schools had taught him to abhor any suggestion that God might have a body. It was instruction like that, he says, that convinced him that the Christians could not possibly be right. I'm quoting Augustine. And these were the men who would eventually write our creeds, Brother Bill? I'm convinced these men were listening to Greece, not heaven. Most of our church fathers did not believe in the Incarnation, and most spiritualized the resurrection. Again, I quote Origen, To be subject to Christ is to be subject to God, and to be subject to God is to have no need of a body, said Origen. You say, Lynn, what's your point? Actually, Brother Bill, I have not strayed from our matter at hand. Let me get to the point, and we'll conclude. On May the 8th, 1838, Joseph Smith preached a sermon. People, especially Protestant ministers, were always asking him, well, what makes Mormonism so different from our religion, meaning Protestantism? And he responded this way, I quote Joseph Smith, the fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven, and all other things, says the Mormon prophet, which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. End of quote. Brother Bill, his comment greatly intrigues me. Joseph Smith is saying essentially the same thing as Paul the Apostle is saying. The essentials of the gospel are Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. Joseph simply adds Christ's ascension to the list. 
no wiggle room here. All believers in Christ must embrace these historical events as gospel. But here's another thing that greatly interests me. His follow-up statement. And all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. In other words, in today's vernacular, all other things are negotiable. There is wiggle room in the negotiables. I say it this way. All other things pertaining to the gospel are non-essentials. Joseph would say, are appendages. My summary, Brother Bill. Joseph Smith, C.S. Lewis, and I, all three of us, are saying the same thing regarding the non-essentials of the gospel. We're not saying non-essentials are not important. We're saying non-essentials do not demand universal agreement. Non-essentials do, however, ask from all of us liberty the liberty to disagree with one another and remain in love and unity as brothers and sisters. When we say non-essentials are not important, we're saying what's important to you may not be to me and what's important to me may not be to you, but we're still family, Brother Bill. That's why, Brother Bill, I freely fellowship among Mormons as a Southern Baptist minister. That's why, Brother Bill, I also freely fellowship, just as easily among Methodists, Catholics, Pentecostals, Lutherans, Amish. No, I do not believe in infant baptismal regeneration, or transubstantiation of the Eucharist, or that speaking in tongues is the initial sign or evidence of the new birth. Nor do I have to believe in secret temple sealings or eternal progression or the deification of man, but I do believe this, and I know by first-hand experience. Brother Bill, I personally know Catholics who are born again who know Jesus. I personally know Methodists who are born again. I personally know Pentecostals who are born again. I personally know Lutherans who are born again. And yes, I also personally know Mormons who are born again, even though they believe in an anthropomorphic Godhead, just as Catholics believe in transubstantiation and Methodists believe in infant baptismal regeneration and Lutherans believe in confirmation. I may not agree with their doctrine. But all Mormons I personally know, all of them, believe with all their heart that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, he rose again the third day, and he ascended into heaven. Brother Bill, they are my brothers and sisters, and I gladly embrace them as my brothers and sisters. Again, thank you for your inquiry. His blessings as we labor in his kingdom together, Lynn Ridenauer. And then I signed off. Well, brothers and sisters, that concludes today's podcast. Until next time, we'll share some more letters from my anti-Mormon friends. God bless you.